You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. If the trade war has a peaceful ending, wine bottles will get a lot more complicated. Welcome to the knock-on effects. All right, this is the show where we start with the thing you know and end up in a strange place. I'm Alex Rosenberg, joined as always by my co-host, Justine Underhill. Hello, hello. Yeah, so this week we're talking about uh, talking about the world of wine. Um, Your favorite topic. It's, it's definitely up there. Yeah, no, I, I listen to a lot of wine podcasts. Um, okay. Um, a couple so of poker podcasts. You have specialty knowledge on this subject. Sure. So, so but we'll start with what everybody knows, which is... Uh, the trade war that we've seen go back and forth, tit for tat, you know, U.S. levied uh, tariffs on $250 billion worth of Chinese goods, China retaliated with tariffs on $110 billion worth of American goods. Uh, U.S. is looking at perhaps levying tariffs on another $300 billion of goods. There's so many numbers. I, I mean, know. it's just— It's, it's not almost- really that that relevant. I mean, but what, what is relevant, though, is that China did call off the, the trade talks. So— yeah, so neither side is looking to end this right away. You would think, though, I mean, because this is not beneficial really to either side, um, that there would be looking for an end to to this. Uh, China can only put so many tariffs on U.S. goods because there aren't that many U.S. goods going to China. Well, sure. But, I mean, there's there's political realities and then there's, you know, reality realities. And actually, I mean, where was I reading this? I think it was an article about the U.S. and China in The Economist. Hmm. So fancy that I read The Economist and drink wine, right? And uh, man, my my uh, my salt of the earth image is really yeah. Your trucker image is now killed. Yeah. Um, so so you know th- th- they mentioned that there's two kind of theories of where government gets its power. It either gets its power uh, because it claims to represent the people, or because it claims to um, do things that help the people, and the trade war, okay, it helps some small group of people, but it, you know, Trump has, if nothing else, certainly captured the zeitgeist around this. Like, certainly captured an idea that the U.S. is being taken advantage of. And, and you know, we've had some people on Real Vision on the podcast and stuff argue that the U.S. has struck d- deals that were very favorable to other countries for many, many years as part of um, maintaining a kind of U.S.-centric global order. And you can see why people would say, wait, wait we're kind of getting screwed by all these deals. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it makes sense that no one's saying, no one's backing down from it because there is a, a 
political calculation here that there's not really something to it. Now, your theory, though, starts with having the trade war end. So it would almost be the opposite of the scenario. Yes, yes. So so just uh, just for fun, because, uh, you know, we can pivot one way or pivot another based on what makes a more fun uh, uh, topic of discussion. I, I'm assuming that the trade war does end and uh, what would happen in that case. So let me, I'll get back to China, I promise. But uh, first I want to talk about uh, something interesting that, that's going on in the world of fine wine. And that's that prices are going crazy. Um, mm. I, I hate when people say prices are going crazy, by the way. Don't you? Why? Because it's like, well, that assumes that like there's no rationality to the prices or that prices have a mind of their own. Oh, well, it kind of gives a sense that it's in a bubble. Right. Well, I, I don't know. What it might be. Maybe. Who, who knows? So October 13th in New York, Sotheby's auctioned off a, a bunch of wines from the personal seller of uh, Robert Druheen. Of course, you know Robert Druheen, Justine, the great Burgundy vintner. Yes. Um, actually, he's also made some wines in the Willamette Valley in Oregon, which you guys might remember from our hazelnut episode. Mm, that all comes together. Two of the lots that were auctioned off were unusually special since each one contained a single bottle of 1945 Romani Conti from the producer Domaine de la Romani Conti, or, or DRC for short. So basically, they, they're auctioning off two, two bottles of this, this wine. And this wine is really, really special wine, kind of special wine, not that special wine. Where does it fall in the scale? Okay, so it's, it's, uh, it's at the top of the scale. So I'm going to quote from a uh, Bloomberg article written by Ellen McCoy to give a bit of context here. Quote, the year was hot overall. The wine's super concentrated. And thanks to hail and frost, production was small. Only 600 bottles of Romani Conti were made. And at this point, very few are left. Furthermore, after the harvest, the vines were ripped out and the vineyards replanted. The next vintage of Romani Conti was 1952. Thank you for that dramatic reading. reading. Yeah. yeah. Um, so these were from, so the original Romani Conti were from what year? What year was it hot and dry? This is 1945, I'm telling you. Okay. Um, so, so uh, okay, we could talk about this for years, but basically Domaine de la Romani Conti is a producer in, in Burgundy, which is in France, and they make uh, wines from different vineyards. One of those vineyards, and considered really the best one, is the Romani Conti vineyard. So these are from that best vineyard in this year that's supposed to be very good for wine, 1945, and had very small production. And it is historically significant because it came before uh, a, a, you know, seven year, uh, seven years of, of uh, no, no wine from this vineyard. Ah. Wait, so why was the next batch in 1952? Yeah, so it's... Um, it's pretty interesting, and and it I actually mentioned on last week's podcast Phylloxera, the little mite that eats through the the vines, um, and that mite decimated uh, Burgundy, really all France, I think a lot of Italy, too, I mean all over um, wine countries, and some vineyards, uh, a lot of vineyards were forced to either rip up their vines, forget about it, maybe plant new ones. Uh, other vineyards with very good uh, wine took American rootstock, which was resistant to phylloxera, and grafted their roots onto the American vines. Other vineyards, like the very, very expensive ones, used something called uh, carbon disulfide, 
which wards the bugs away. Do you think it makes the wine taste differently? Like any of those processes? Yeah, well, so so there's a discussion about whether grafting is better or worse. Some people say grafting isn't as good. Some people say French wines were better before phylloxera. But a lot of the people who say this are people with like very old wines to sell you. So it, there, there's really no way to know. Uh, some producers in the world claim they don't graft and so their wine is better, but it might not mean that. Oh my gosh, all these wine controversies I didn't know about. I, I never it, knew I wanted to know about. It's Well, maybe you still don't. <laughs> um, so... so and 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 so here's uh, Kelly White writing about uh, what happened in 1945 for uh, Guildsam, and I quote: "During Phylloxera, many less prestigious or Gamay-dominated vineyards were left to languish, as only the top producers could afford the expensive CS2 injections that kept the Laos at bay. Famously, the last vineyards to be replanted onto grafted vines in Burgundy were Domaine de la Romanie Conti's Romanie Conti and part of Richebourg. Both were pulled out in 1945." when the war made carbon disulfide impossible to come by and were replanted in 1947. Ah, and so that's why the next batch was 1952. That's right, because it takes some time for the uh, the, vineyards, the the vines to really produce some good grapes. Um, but, but yeah, so, so now you see why these 1945 uh, Romani Contis were, were so significant. And Sotheby's auctioned it off, and, and their estimate they put in the book was 22000 to 32000 a reasonable price for this very for one bottle of wine. Yeah. expensive, yeah, um, but, rare but wine. What happened in the room, uh, according to Wine Spectator, and I quote, Rob Rosania, a New York real estate developer and noted wine collector, raised his paddle and left it there. 150, 160, 170, 180, 200. Auctioneer Jamie Ritchie rattled off in rapid fire as if he was counting. Those numbers were actually thousands of dollars. Salvos in a bidding war between Rosania and an unidentified online bidder. That's so mysterious. Yeah, well, it's common to have it have an online bidder, but but basically what happened was that Rosania eventually conceded and put it down his paddle, and the online bidder got the bottle of wine uh, in, at a price including the buyer's premium and taxes of $558,000. Is there any bottle of wine that you think is worth half a million dollars? That's crazy. Because this was valued at 22000 How does that happen? I feel like that's only a bubble that you get something like that. Well, no, no, not necessarily. I mean, it, it's, it's you know, what, what's what's art worth? I mean, what's, you, you can't put a, put a, really, what's gold worth for that matter? You can't really put a good price on these things. There, there's no, like, valuation metrics. You're not expecting it to pay back a dividend. So the price is only what you're willing to pay and what other people are willing and to pay. I feel like people are only willing to pay half a million dollars when there is half a million dollars to spend on such items. So that being probably a bubble. Well, not necessarily. I mean, there are a lot of billionaires who maintained that billionaire status throughout the financial crisis. I mean, some people just have way more money than they'll ever be able to spend on their lifetime. So the fact that a bottle of wine goes for half a million dollars merely indicates that some people just want to spend half a million dollars on a bottle of wine. Like it, it's also one financial decision. It's not like the stock market or something else where it's made a multiple. It's only one person, really two people have to keep bidding against each other. And, yeah, and that's it. But I feel like on the other hand, um, you know, during boom times or doing, during good times, um, people are much more likely to spend money on these sort of luxury goods. So that's why you see the the art market rise and fall alongside the economy. That's why I would imagine the wine market is actually very similar to the art market. Yeah, it 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 is for sure. I mean, when when more people have more money, like 
price wines are going to go for for more. I mean, there's yeah. also there's also cyclicality within the wine market itself, and like w- w- you know, I'm going to get into this a bit, but basically, Burgundies now are are extremely hot. Um, whereas, it's funny because in the um, the video version of this, you called Burgundies cool, so now they're hot. Oh yeah, well you you want to serve them with us with a slight chill usually. Um, okay, actually. If there's one take home from this episode, people generally serve wine a bit too hot. Ah. Because uh, how, you know, if you read old books, they'll say serve it at room temperature if it's a fine red wine. But room temperature is actually uh, now warmer than it used to be. Hmm. So it used to be people live in these manors, you know, with these stone houses, kind of like uh, the professor's house. Uh Uh, So in general, you, you might want to throw it in the fridge even if it's a fine red wine. I've actually heard that if you chill red wine, it's indistinguishable from white wine. Well, in in general, if you chill things, it, it makes it harder to taste. I mean, this is why we uh, drink a, a lot of liquid so cold, including water, because it, it, try try drinking your water at room temperature or a little hot, and you'll taste all the disgusting stuff that's in it. Uh, I'll just say very briefly that red wines that are really tough, that have a lot of tannins, that are difficult to drink, usually benefit from a chill. And and light red wines often benefit from a chill. But even for fine red wines, you if if your house is you know sixty seven degrees or seventy degrees, you don't want to be just like taking it and serving it because then it'll taste kind of mealy and flabby. Um, whereas putting a chill will bring out some of the more acidic qualities. Okay. Anyway, so the. Uh, uh, Bottle this this the first bottle went for five hundred fifty eight thousand. Um, Rob Rosania did get the second bottle um, for four hundred ninety six thousand dollars. So uh, got a better price on the second. You usually get a better price on the second one. How much was the second one going for? I mean, were th- these were all in the twenty two thousand dollar range. Well, you know, it's a bit more. Uh, and then he actually got the very next lot as well, which is a Romani Conti nineteen forty three for a mere. Uh, $68,200. So those first two bottles. That drops off quite quickly. Well, 43 is not as good as a year. Okay. And um, and it doesn't have the story about you know, the last year. That, um. I mean, 1945 Romani Conti is like, it's like, you know, that kind of. It's it, sort it, of it, a romantic it, story around it. It's like, it's like Starry Night. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's considered one of the greatest masterpieces of it's it's the mass in b minor or the you know not la boheme but something better of of wine i like how you relate wine to opera because you know why because i want it to be relatable for the people yeah thanks (laughs) well actually i want to bring up the fact that you were at a wine auction so so um i was at uh and i have the catalog here he's showing us right now except i guess you guys can't see it but he's showing me. It was called the Vault Three, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I actually saw a great bidding war between two couples. So we were just—I went there with Michelle, and we met these two other guys, uh, Matt and Max, who are pretty cool. Um, and we were all just chatting, and they bring around—they uh, bring us some wine, which is nice. And and I have um, bought wine at auction before, uh, not not in the uh, you know half a million dollar range, but um, yeah, it, it was it was pretty fun. And there was at the front, there was two couples at the front of the room, and you know often. Uh, some of the bidding war happens either online or on the telephone or 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 there's someone in the room maybe who's a representative of, of a rich person. But this was like two couples in the front who were making decisions on the fly. So the entire room kind of quieted down as this uh, lot uh, of Montrachet uh, Domaine Remenet, 
I wish I knew how to pronounce French words. 1985 came up. But as I said, uh, it was actually six magnums, which are double bottles of this white burgundy. And they were just going back and forth. And it was like, you know, 40,000. And the other couple would look at each other and put up the paddle, 50,000. The other couple would look at each other. And like, and the auctioneer was like egging him on because at one point he was like, oh, she's looking at him. She, she wants another bid. She's looking for another bid. And then he like bid again. And the hammer came down at uh, $90,000, which is, um, Woof. Re- yeah, it, it represents uh, $111,000 for the, uh, including the, the fees and taxes. Um, and actually, I, uh, at that auction, it was a one-day auction at uh, La Bernadette, and it, it, let's see, it realized here uh, over $9 million dollars. Um, that lot that I'd seen, and, and as well as uh, a bunch of others, actually set world records. Did it? Did it get any of your dollars? No, I didn't. It, it's a little. Uh, it was a little out of control for me. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Sorry. Okay. So I, what I want to point out, though, is that Burgundy um, is really having quite a time of it. I mean, as, as you know, Zacchaeus was sort of writing about uh, that it's a market hot for Burgundy, and. The you know we've seen this even before um, the recent auction. So Livex tracks fine wine prices, and they reported in July quote Burgundy prices have risen relentlessly in 2018, um, and and just like way ahead of other uh, other kinds of wine. Interesting though that they're so far beyond other wines. Yeah, so 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 we'll get into that. I mean, it's interesting. They're very as I said, they're they're you know they're quite uh, in the, in vogue right now. So so in terms of Burgundy, uh, that same company, Livex, wrote a February report where they drew some pretty interesting conclusions about what was driving Burgundy prices. And I quote here, in the context of growing global wealth and constrained Burgundy supply, more money is chasing fewer bottles. This in turn puts pressure on prices. At Burgundy's loftiest price points for rare older vintages, there are a limited number of potential buyers in the world. But this number has been steadily growing. The broadest possible measure of extreme wealth, the number of known billionaires, has doubled since 2007. In China alone, this figure has grown from none in 2007 to 319 in 2017. Uh, and then they go on to note, well, okay, this really speaks to your point, unfortunately, but that the, there's a, a good de- degree of correlation between the Hang Seng Index, the NASDAQ, and the Burgundy 150, which have all risen by about um, 50% since uh, December of 2015. Okay, thank you for proving my point. And in terms of the, the Burgundy-Bordeaux dichotomy, I mean, this is pretty interesting too because I, I, Robert Frank from uh, CNBC, who, who did a pretty sweet job, I have to say. He like just covers wealth and yeah, fancy I've things. Yeah, I've seen that. He yeah. like drives nice cars yeah. and drinks fancy wine. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and he wrote uh, last week an article, quote, while wealthy Chinese wine buyers drove up the prices of Bordeaux in the early 2000s, they quickly shifted to Burgundy, which are much more scarce. And that's just simply because it's scarce. So it's the idea that because it's rare, I want this, and then that drives up the price even more. So it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, sure. I mean, but but again, you know, 600 bottles of this stuff were made. So that's – there's a bunch of history here because – because Burgundy is is much older as a wine region than Bordeaux, and so just the way it came together, Bordeaux was always a bit more commercial, and Burgundy was you know always a bit more cloistered. Um, so now th- there has also been, I will say, a shift in the global tastes away from 
very, I don't want to say American style because when you're referring to Bordeaux wines, but really American influenced wines that are very high in fruit, very high in alcohol. You got a lot of oak, really big boom, kind of like punch you in the mouth wines, um, which can be very good. Nothing against them. Burgundy wines, they're, they're Pinot Noir as compared to either Cabernet or Merlot. They te- they're typically a, a lot more subtle. Hmm. It's funny because these are trends that I had no idea about. I yeah. feel so out of this world. Right. Well, yeah. So, but but if but think about food trends, okay? So so steakhouse is very very hot in like you know the 90s. last the last bubble, right? Yeah. Nineties and two thousands yeah. steakhouses were the place, and now people are, you know, it, 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 I don't think that personally I would host a even though I love steakhouses, especially there's some really good ones in New York. And when James comes up, we'll go to a great steakhouse. But I don't think I'd host a work dinner in a steakhouse because I think it feels a little antiquated. So you do something like a farm to table. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Restaurant situation. Right. So so the way the tastes have changed away from the very, and and, and also, you know, business culture is more accepting of of different people from different backgrounds. And Bordeaux, I hate to say this, is, is like a wine of, of white men. I mean, it's a very male, macho wine, whereas Burgundy is is a bit, it, it, it's less of a feat of strength, if you will. Huh. It's actually a very good analogy to the steakhouse. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. And you've seen steakhouses fall off. Yeah. Or the new ones are like very, you know, hip and more delicate. They're not like- Organic. Not, yeah. Um, or Korean, if anyone's ever been to Cote. Oh, wow, I could just talk about steakhouses all day, but we're going to move on. We're going to move on, I promise. So um, the, the point where I'm going here is that if the trade war heats up, Chinese buyers uh, will be less able to buy expensive bottles of DRC and probably everyone across the globe because global, globalization is typically good for you know people who have a lot of capital. But if it doesn't heat up and it does taper off, kind of like your thesis implies, then I guess Chinese buyers will continue to buy more of these wines. Yes, that's right. And we'll also see, sorry, I took a slurp. We're just going to roll with it. Uh, also see a rise in, in something else, counterfeiting. Ah, so as these bottles get more expensive, we're going to see more counterfeit bottles, kind of like honey. Exactly. A lot of times the honey, by the way. Um, and it, it's a it's a big problem. I mean, counterfeiting is, is I, I'm just going to read a quote from uh, one of my favorite writers personally and, and uh a uh, master of wine herself, Jancis Robinson, quote, wine, liquid and unpredictable, could hardly be easier to doctor, unfortunately, even to a standard capable of convincing professionals. Indeed, our favorite drink has been adulterated and counterfeited since at least the first century AD, when Pliny the Elder, you can always count on wine writers, by the way, to pull out, you know. Really random references. Uh, when Pliny the Elder, just to explain to the people, you know, guys, just like Pliny, man. All right. When Pliny the Elder complained that, quote, not even our nobility ever enjoys wines that are genuine. Very similar to what we were talking about with honey. I mean, wine also never has an ingredient list, too, which is something that a lot of wine people complain about. But, ah. um, but you know, it's just like in a bottle, and it changes over time. So, like, if you have it in 2010 and then you have it in 2020, you're like, this is, tastes different. Like, yeah, it's supposed to. That's the whole yeah. point of aging it. You don't actually know what it should taste like. There is no standard really for because each wine bottle or wine is different completely different yeah i mean it should be from the same tank or vat or barrel so but but a one bottle from the same vat could be very different depending on how it ages depending on the cork depending on so many different factors yeah yeah sure it, it, it's true i mean there's good expressions and bad expressions of, of 
I mean, if you have the same wine 10 times and, you, and one's counterfeit, you should know it. But, but that being said, it's, especially if it is something you'll only have once in your life, like 1945 Mouton Rothschild or 1945 Romani Conti, mm. you, you ain't going to know. Right. Or if you're buying them, it, you know, if there's like four bottles to the pack or something like that that you're buying, they're probably all faked. Sure. If it is a fake one. So you wouldn't even know the difference between those that you bought. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and you might not want to know. I mean, it kind of spoils the fun if someone's like, I think this wine you bought is fake. It's like, seriously? I opened this bottle of million-dollar wine for you, and you're telling me it's fake. Um, so, so just to give you a scope of the problem, uh, Maureen Downey, who runs a business called Chai Consulting, wine authentication evaluation business, um, said in 2016 that she herself had handled, quote, more Domaine de la Romani Conti, Romani Conti 1945, than has been made. And this, this is the bottle we're talking about. And Serena Sutcliffe, who, who actually you know, ran Sotheby's wine business for 25 years, her tasting notes appear in the description of the lots that earned the records. And by the way, if you're curious uh, what that description is for these lots, um, rare and wonderful. The best bottles are so concentrated and exotic with seemingly everlasting power, a wine at peace with itself. This sounds like such BS. At peace with itself. Isn't that interesting? Do you think she's not at peace with herself? Like... I don't know. I've never really understood wine descriptions. Mm. Like, does that make sense to you? Would you taste the wine and be like, yeah, this is not at peace with itself. I totally understand what that tastes like. I kind of would know what it means for a wine to not be at peace with itself. It's definitely not the first time. Honestly, it's kind of a faint compliment. Like, if if, if you made me a cake and I was like, this cake is at peace with itself. Like, uh, all right. I don't know. I feel so like- it's not like messed up, I guess. I feel like um, everybody in the wine world kind of just has this coded language where I went to a wine tasting and they said, what do, what do you think it tastes like? And I said, raspberries. And mm-hmm. they're like, yes, yes, yes. And I feel like I could have thrown out any word. I could have said it tastes like wood pulp. Well, maybe not that extreme, but I could have said some anything and I, they would have said, oh, yes, yes, yes. We absolutely taste that. So it's sort of this bizarre um, group think where everybody thinks they understand what the other person's talking about, but it um, doesn't really make any sense in the end of the day. Yes and no. Like, like in, in all seriousness, there is something to it. First of all, wood pulp I have tasted once. But th- <laughs> there, there is something to it because, and they found that certain chemical compounds are, I think we touched on this in a prior episode when we talked about something. Maybe. I think we did. What do you, where are you going? blend together. Where are you going with that, it? That there, there's something real to the smell that you're getting. Like the chemical compound that you get in the wine. That Vanilla. Smells. Oh yes, exactly. The, the chemical compound you get that that smells like vanilla or like asparagus or like melon, um, you'll actually find the same thing in vanilla. Or I mean, you'll see vanilla in the wine. So it's it's it, it's actually a real thing. I okay. mean, and and the, the the best tasters can say, oh yes, like I just by blind tasting, this is a wine from roughly this year from, like, this general place and uh, from this grape. Okay, so maybe I'm dismissing it a little bit too much. I, I think it's, it's you know, people like want to dismiss it because it's snooty it and sounds, we're having this whole backlash yeah. against experts. So, sure. But, so, um, so, 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 Serena uh, here uh, <laughs> drew attention to the issue, uh, saying in 2006 about uh, uh, 1945 Mouton Rothschild, uh, very similar to what Downey said about the DRC, Mouton Rothschild in 1945, with no provenance whatsoever, is appearing as if it grew on trees. Certainly, much more has been sold than was ever made. And and there, there's actually a really really good movie about this um, called 
Sour Grapes that talks about one guy named Rudy Kurniawan, who's serving 10 years in prison for counterfeiting more than $30 million worth of fine and rare wine, including a, a lot of uh, DRC. So what do you do about this? I mean, there's it just seems like a hopeless endeavor where it's like you have no idea what wine you're drinking, and there's almost no way to know. So one thing you could do is you can buy from sources that you trust. So the Beast probably the best reputation for uh, out of any auction house in terms of uh, selling you the real thing. Um, and, and these wines, I, I mentioned they're from the cellar of, uh, our friend Robert Druheen. And, you know, he had the, he, at some point he got real 1945 Romani Conti and it makes sense. He kept a couple bottles in the cellar and it makes sense. He would sell it through Sotheby's. So like, that's why the price, the, the prices uh, were so high because the, the kind of, uh, you know, odds you put on bakery, which you would subtract from the value of the wine, are actually very, very low in this situation. Like, these are probably not real But maybe wines. he's in a really, really good position to fake it. Yeah, sure. I mean, he could. He, he's, he's a rich and very highly respected guy. So okay, he wouldn't want to ruin it. Okay. I don't, I don't think so. Um, so so the, the other thing you can do to avoid buying fake wine is to... Um, to check, you know, things things on the bottle. So you can check the ink. You can check a, a lot of fake bottles have uh, are made with like ultra white paper that didn't exist before the 1960s and uh, et, et, et cetera. Um, hmm. But what wineries are trying to do is find ways to combat the the forfeiting by by getting into some technological changes themselves. So I, I brought uh, two two bottles of. Um, both Bordeaux's actually, and uh, one Chateau de Isan, they have a, so I read online that they have a, a microtext, and I literally was in the wine store for about uh, maybe 30 minutes. I even went out to CVS to buy a magnifying glass. I was searching for this text on the bottle. Um, I didn't find it, but then we found it when we, we were taking it. the show. Yeah. So. Um, and it, it's tiny. It's actually even difficult to see with the magnifying glass itself. Yeah. Uh, so you would have to have like some sort of very special device to be able to read the text. So again, it's just one thing that, and, and, and they don't really publicize where this text is. So a counterfeiter would probably mess that part up. Uh. So if you saw it, you'd be like, yeah, it's probably, probably real. Um, and then a lot of wines are doing this thing called uh, bubble tag made by a company called Proof Tag, where, and, and we had a bottle that did this as well. If you scan the QR code, you can, it takes you to a page with um, the exact arrangement of little bubbles. Yeah. And that arrangement of little, and which are broken once you open the bottle. And that arrangement of little bubbles, uh, if it looks the same, if it matches up, you can be pretty confident that it's real. I just wonder if I could, you know, make my own QR code and then make my own little bubble tag. And yeah. And put that all together. I mean, it would be a lot more work, but it's still something, you know. That could be faked. Yeah, it, it, it certainly could be. But it would be a lot more difficult. But, um, yeah, so that, that's sort of the thesis here, right? That if uh, China steps, if we, or the U.S. or China, or both, step back from the trade war, that will be uh, more good news for the wine market, which will lead to higher prices, which will lead to more counterfeiting, which will lead wineries who don't want to see their wine counterfeited um, to take measures to to fix that with, with technological changes, making wine bottles more complicated. And then, of course, we have my favorite topic, uh -oh. the blockchain. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I feel like I, I've seen blockchain applications for things like rare whiskeys and other drinks um, where, where it's basically um, anti-counterfeiting measures. And I feel like that's another step along this process where if some of these items are 
tagged and processed along the blockchain, then you can track them over their entire lifespan. Because right now, if you buy a bottle of wine, you don't necessarily know who owned it before right. and who owned it before that, who owned it before that. So right. having some sort of ledger that's somewhat verifiable, um, I think, could reduce the amount of counterfeiting. Because if suddenly a bottle appeared out of nowhere in China, that would be very suspicious. Yeah. I mean, you could also, like the winery could also just keep track. Yeah. Why don't they do that? Uh, some do, I think. I want to say that like some of the most expensive wineries do keep track in some ways. Or you can take it to them and see if it's real or not. Mm, um, okay. That's nice. Yeah. That would make a fun trip. But but yeah, so sure, could use the blockchain, but you could also use like Microsoft Excel. <laughs> yeah, well, that's always the, the argument is that, well, we well, could use okay. Excel. Okay, well, use this as a case study to show why that argument's wrong. Well, because I can edit an Excel document, whereas the blockchain is not as editable. I guess as, someone. I guess okay. Someone, if a, a really, really enterprising forfeiter, counterfeiter, whatever, yeah. forfeiter, counterfeiter. What's a forfeiter. They forfeit a game, so you leave the game. <laughs> so a counterfeiter who is not a forfeiter could uh, hack into the DRC's website and or or their computers and change. All right, I see it. I, yeah. I believe it. Okay, so now I've convinced Alex that the blockchain is maybe somewhat useful. Perhaps. I think that's a, a good enough day. That's that's the marker. That's the marker here. Yeah, the real vision of a good day. Um, you you uh, you're, you're not so into you're not so into the wines. No, even though I I I keep saying you know you would if you using your super tasting skills, uh, your super I would be great sommelier. But here's the reason why I'm not a good sommelier, or I'm not so into wine, is because super tasters very much taste bitter. And wine has a lot of bitter flavors in it. And to me, that signals uh, poison. Right. What's funny, it's, that's actually probably the definition of wine. By definition, wine has to be bitter. Otherwise, you're really talking about grape juice. Right. And so the poisonous taste is yeah. very, very not appealing to me. I'd be a great chocolate taster. I would make a really great cheese taster. Mm -hmm. Almost anything but wine. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Mm. Too bad. So... I have to say, like I, I was at the auction, and and I just it's it's a very what am I trying to say? It's very community driven. It's very much, especially live auctions, and this is why you get much 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 sharper prices on online auctions than the live auctions. Because the live auctions, it's like you know people like Rob Rosania enjoy the experience of being seen spending money. I mean that's real, and that's really the pleasure of it because. People collect stamps too, which you can't even. I mean, I guess you can lick a stamp, but like, I don't think that's the same as tasting a, a great wine. Like, this feels so much more ostentatious. No, but I, I think it's so much less ostentatious no. than something like stamps because, because this is. So, so there. Okay, so there is. On one hand, I agree with you. There is real part of the pleasure in collecting wine is just the pleasure in spending money. For people who make a lot of money, like way too much money, it's hard to get down. You know a million dollars on, on one item, particularly in a way that's public and like makes you seem classy. So I think a lot of the pleasure in these auctions is like, ah, I'm seen buying this wine. Mm. Um, but it's, it's less ostentation than stamps because you actually might like wine stands for a lot of really nice things, you know, alcohol, no, wait, not alcohol. Uh, but no, it, it stands for, you know, opening a bottle with friends. It's a special occasion. It's, you know, it, it might help you uh, at, at, with a business associate. It, it's a social lubricant. You know, it, it actually, 
It's very tasty, and 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 it you know concentrates your mind on something. You get to it. It does a lot of nice things. I think what it represents is a lot nicer than like stamps. Stamps. It sends mail. I mean, yeah. seriously, nobody's spending half a million dollars on a stamp. Sure, they though. are. Uh, uh, Bill Gross just auctioned off his collection for like several million dollars. Really? Oh, but it's a lot of stamps. It's not one. No, but 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 the most. I think the most expensive stamp uh, is. Let's let let's see. So Bill Gross. Uh, yeah, Bill Gross sold a block of four stamps that fetched $737,500. What? And again, you can lick them, but I don't think it's going to taste as good as uh, Domaine de Little Mini Conti. It most might have a little bit of that bitter flavor. Oh, yeah, you're not going to like it. No, I wouldn't like either. <laughs> all right, all right. That's the show. That's the show. We're back every Thursday. And if you want to watch the video version, you can go to realvision.com slash knockoneffect. And there you can see some of the uh, counterfeiting or anti-counterfeiting measures that a lot of these wine makers are putting onto their bottles. So you can actually see the QR code for yourself. Yes, indeed. Uh, meanwhile, while you're there, you can sign up for a 14-day free trial. Uh, check out a lot of uh, a lot of China coverage, actually, this these past few weeks. Really important China coverage. Yeah. Um, and actually coming up on Friday, uh, you guys should definitely check out this video that came out with Kyle Bass and an undisclosed. Am it, I allowed to reveal who it is? Uh, yeah, why not? Go for it. Well, we'll leave it a mystery. You should just <laughs> check it out. I promise it'll be good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you should. You should. You, um, just head over there. You can sign up for a fourteen-day free trial, and then just cancel it. Watch it all, and, and uh, go away. Go away, or stay. All right. See you guys next week. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.